Welcome to the Transformational Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Hannah Anam. My mission is to help you lead more effectively and be an agent of positive change in times of disruption. On this podcast, we interview practitioners and leadership experts and have coaching exercises that you can apply immediately to your work challenges. Together, we learn how to achieve success and create workplaces in a world that work better for all. It's my pleasure to introduce our podcast audience to Adam Simpson. Adam is the president and CEO of EW Scripts Company. And Adam and I have known each other now, Adam, for three years, four years, something like that. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And I want to share a little bit more about Adam. So uh, prior to becoming CEO in 2017, Adam actually started at Scripps in 2002. So that's a, a very long time that you've had your career. And prior to becoming CEO, you were um, the chief operating officer overseeing the company's broadcast, TV, radio, and, and digital media divisions. And you were chief digital officer from um, 2011 to 2016. And you drove uh, a lot of the company's digital transformation which we're hearing a lot about digital transformation, especially since the pandemic. So one thing I wanted to ask Adam is, is uh, a little bit more about him. And uh, what he shared uh, with me is that he actually started his career as an investigative journalist. And Adam, one of the things I, I really resonated with is that you cook every day. Every single meal that your family eats is something that you have cooked. Yeah, yeah, that's true. After work, uh, whether it was uh, in this work from home time, which obviously uh, has made it a little bit more convenient or, you know, when we were back in the office and when I expect to be back in the office, uh, hopefully before too long, I come home and it's part of my routine to make dinner for the family and uh, enjoy cooking. But I also enjoy the process of creating something that my family can sit with me around the table and eat. Of course, things have gotten more complicated because now my kids are you know, all over the place with different sports and and different practice. But uh, when we eat at home and when we're all gathered around the table together, uh, it's generally for a meal that I've cooked. Yeah. And what's your favorite thing to cook, Adam? Oh, wow. I don't have any favorites. I mean, I I enjoy cooking curries and Indian food. I I enjoy doing stir fries. Uh, I love slow cooking things like uh, uh, barbecue ribs and chicken. You're just making me hungry now because it's Pretty like lunchtime. <laughs> there you go. And all the cooking that I've had to do has really forced me to expand my repertoire. That's a wide repertoire of things, you know. <laughs> Seal by daytime, a wonderful gourmet cook by night. That's awesome. So would you just start by um, sharing with our podcast audience a bit about Scripps Media, UW Scripps, and the company, and also your personal career journey. Sure. This is one of the country's oldest media companies. The company is about 142 years old, founded by E.W. Scripps uh, when he launched his first newspaper, the Penny Press. And he then grew his company to become one of the largest newspaper empires in the country. When the federal government started handing out licenses for radio, a technology that nobody quite understood 
the EW Scripps company showed up in Washington and, and got some of those first licenses to broadcast radio. And likewise, when television came along, became one of the first uh, licensed broadcast television providers in this country. Today, we're mostly in broadcast television as both a local broadcast company as well as a national broadcast company. Yeah. Give us a sense of what 2020 was like for you. I mean, it's been such a disruptive year. And particularly, I imagine like sitting at the very top of the organization, working with all the employees, this different stakeholders, your board. What were some of the biggest challenges that you felt like you had to deal with? And what decisions did you feel like you had to make that you could not have anticipated? The whole year could not have been anticipated. Uh, I think back to a little bit more than a year ago in March of 2020, when we were beginning to have conversations around the office about this global pandemic. And I recall the moment we made the decision to go entirely work from home, actually pretty proactively. And at the time we made that decision, it seemed preposterous. When we made the decision at the time, I really do remember thinking to myself, well, I'll camp out in this extra bedroom upstairs for you know, two weeks, a month, <laughs> and then this will all pass. But what happened to our business, we saw the governors immediately take similar actions, and that had a dramatic impact on our business. The business disruptions that we experienced in March and in April last year were profound. We watched 40, 50% of our advertising revenue simply disappear overnight. And that was scary. It was really alarming because we did not have great clarity on how bad it would get, nor how long it would last. And I have to tell you, it was, um, there were a lot of moments where I looked in the mirror and thought, this is more than I bargained for, for sure. And when you looked in the mirror and thought, this is more than I bargained for, what did you lean on for strength and support? I had come through a number of challenges over the first two years of being CEO that sort of fortified me. Mm. And I've learned that I could handle almost anything at work as long as I broke it down into its components, surrounded myself with the talented leaders we have at Scripps, relied on them to do their jobs and to inform me, and really just sort of coalesced as a team to move through the pandemic. And I'm not saying I didn't have sleepless nights. I did. But I definitely felt that we could manage through it. And there, there became a moment where I felt like we could do better than manage through it. There became a moment where I realized that we could act in a way that would actually allow us to emerge from the pandemic a stronger company than we went into it. And I was so convinced of that. Um, I recall even during our May earnings call, writing a line in our prepared remarks promising our shareholders that we would not play defense, but that we would play offense and that we would emerge from the pandemic much stronger. And I would say with regard to almost all of the decisions we've made, I'm satisfied that they helped set that up to be true. Hmm. So, yeah. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because, Adam, coming back to what you were saying, that you came to this place from March where you were like looking at yourself in the mirror saying, did I sign up for this to May where you said you kind of came to a realization that you will emerge stronger to then later in the year where you actually disrupted yourself 
right? So in the midst of all this disruption that's happening that everybody is dealing with, you disrupted yourself by doing a major acquisition. So tell us about that decision and, and sort of how do you, how do you make that decision to say, yeah, there's not enough change that's happening in my life that I want to do more. Yeah. I mean, we had a really active year. I mean, it was definitely not a year where we just hunkered down while our operators were focused on ensuring that they were navigating the pandemic in the best interests of our employees and our audiences and our advertisers and the communities we serve. We really focused on how we could use this as an opportunity to remake the company. It started with the decision we had made to divest of Stitcher, our podcasting business. And we knew even before the pandemic that we were likely headed in that direction. And I recognized, or we recognized, that our business would be better off in the hands of a company with audio scale. And so we sold Stitcher in 2020. I remember having a conversation with the Sirius XM CEO, and both of us, after the announcement, marveled that the fact that we were able to actually do this transaction which had a headline value of $325 million without actually ever meeting people in person. The whole thing was done over Zoom, which was remarkable. Nobody actually was meeting in the offices during this time. And that was a significant thing. Lo and behold, afterwards, we ended up doing a transaction to acquire Ion Media for $2.65 billion, which is the transaction I think you were talking about. And that has really remade the company and shifted our focus to, to being a pure broadcast television company at a moment where we see a tremendous opportunity in broadcast television. And we did that because we saw the opportunity. We thought we had to seize it. We saw that the owner of Ion Media had been wanting to sell the asset previously that a process had been disrupted also as a result of the pandemic. And several times over, I called the sponsor, the banker or the uh, the owner of ION, and I said, look, I, I would really like us to re-engage on this process. And they, for fear of not wanting to sell it too low a price, sort of held us off. But we kept going and we kept going. And uh, we had problem after problem that we had to solve in order to put a bid in front of them that was sizable enough. Fortunately, we were able to work with the folks at Berkshire Hathaway, and we ended up putting an unsolicited bid in front of Ion Media's owners that they recognized was a good opportunity for them. It was a fair price. It accounted for both some of the pandemic's value destruction, but also what we all knew was the real inherent value in the business. And we did so with enough time to clear it through the regulators. This was one of the largest transactions, broadcast televisions in the history of the country. And we wanted to make sure that the FCC would approve the deal. And we also knew that with the change, with a change in administration, it hadn't been election day, but I knew there was a chance there could be a change in administration. There could be also a change at the FCC. And so we wanted to make sure we were you know, setting our, our business up to, uh, to move through that process well. And uh, fortunately, things just worked out in a way that uh, allowed us to transform this 142-year-old journalism company once again. Yeah, that's a story of making some pretty bold moves in the midst of all of this change that's already happening. And one of the things, I mean, when there's so much ambiguity around you, 
particularly in the media business, there's a very much of a shifting landscape in terms of viewer habits, et cetera, that is happening. And this is a fairly big transaction, $2 billion, over $2 billion um, transaction. How do you marshal the personal conviction to influence these people that in the midst of so much ambiguity that this is the right deal to be done? Well, the deal was done around the premise that acquiring Ion Media and combining it with our other national television assets, the Cates Networks and Newsy, could create a new national networks powerhouse that operated in a new growth market over the air television. And so first and foremost, we had to test our assumptions. We had to understand whether or not that was true. Would it be a attractive economic combination? Is this market growing? And what we found was not only did we know it would be an attractive economic combination for the near term, but we recognized also that in the midst of the pandemic, the pandemic actually hastened even the opportunity in over-the-air television. More people were cutting the cord. More people were plugging in digital antennas and discovering free over-the-air television. And so rather, again, rather than sort of play defense, we decided we would lean into these macro trends. Free television ends up being a really efficient pairing with subscription video on demand. Mm. And that's what's been driving that growth. And so today, we're the largest holder of broadcast spectrum. We're the largest operator of networks in the free over-the-air television space. And we expect continued growth as more people look for new ways to bring their own bundles together of their entertainment options. So... How did you think about one thing that, you know, in the midst of disruption, we've got the pandemic, we've got the fact that, you know, the whole work from home culture, we've got digital disruption that's already happening as a result of the pandemic. You shared some great stories about that. How did you think about how much change? And and this is, I think, a lot of leaders who are listening into the podcast are probably also it's kind of on their on their minds is. How much change can an organization absorb? And at what point do you, what is it that you can do, I think, as a leader, as a CEO, to enable the organization to be more change agile? So this company has, I think, proven itself over and over to be a company capable of change. I mean, I referenced earlier how many different mediums we've been in. And I think it's part of the DNA. It's part of the culture of our company. We always say that uh, that a career at Scripps is meant to be an adventure because things are always changing. But I do think there is a place where one has to allow people to catch their breath. And actually, 2020 was going to be that year. We had actually doubled the size of our broadcast television, local broadcast television portfolio in 2019. And that was a tremendous amount of work for our teams to integrate all of these new television stations and to bring all of these employees onto our systems and to bring all of our broadcast systems together. And so we had already gone through a tremendous amount of change. We were going through a tremendous amount of change even in the first quarter when all of a sudden we had to pivot as a result of the pandemic. And yet, at the same time, for the last three years, the work we've been doing at this company, it's been about setting the company up for transformation. 2020 itself was going to be a break. I mean, in 2019, we had doubled the size of our local television station portfolio. 
And there was a tremendous amount of work that had to go into integrating all of those new TV stations, bringing all of those employees over. And so 2020 was going to be the year where we sort of sat back and operated. And then the pandemic happened. It would have been easy enough, I think, to just resign ourselves to navigate the pandemic. That was a tremendous amount of work, by the way. We can talk also about the fact that the killing of George Floyd touched off a tremendous moment for this country and even for employees in our company, given that we're a journalism company. So there was a lot of disruption, a lot of a lot of anxiety, a lot of work that uh, that was happening in 2020. And yet, if you're going to be opportunistic, you you have to seize opportunities when they come to you. And the entirety of my term as CEO has really been about moving towards transformation. Right from the beginning, we began doing work that would set ourselves up, ready our company for additional transformation. And so when the moment came for us to be able to acquire Ion Media, despite the fact that I knew our team, our company could use the break, we also knew we had to take the opportunity. One of the things that strikes me that is such an important attribute for any CEO is the ability to understand and manage all of their stakeholders. You know, obviously you've got shareholders and you've got a board, but you know, you've got employees as stakeholders who are out there reporting, right, on all of these issues that are that we had to deal with this year, including the issues of race. And you've got obviously employees who are black employees in your organization. How do you think about managing all the needs of the multiple stakeholders, particularly in the midst of all of this disruption that's happening and the disruption that you're creating, right? As a result of the vision, the long-term vision you have. I mean, we have probably a longer list of stakeholders than I think a lot of companies. I mean, of course, we have our employees, 6,000 employees spread out across the country. We have our shareholders. We've got a responsibility always to be creating value. We have our controlling shareholder, the Scripps family, that has a legacy of managing this company through all sorts of different global events over the last 142 years. We have the communities that we serve in with journalism and advertising. We, of course, have our advertisers and our audiences, and we expect to be good stewards of the relationship that we have, the responsibility we have there. And then, frankly, I, I think about our nation's democracy as one of the stakeholders that we serve, because as a journalism company, a mission-focused journalism company, the citizens of this country rely on the work we do in order to make informed decisions in the ballot box. And... So it's always about making sure that you can spin all of those plates. I will tell you, as the pandemic unfolded, we set about making all of our decisions based on three priorities. The first being the health and welfare of our employees. The second being business continuity, including financial stewardship. And the third being our ability to execute the mission. And making every decision through that lens, through that filter, I think has served us exceptionally well. So I think we've been able to manage every one of our decisions with those priorities in mind and recognize that we wanted to become stronger as a result of our perseverance through the pandemic. And I think it's proven itself a worthy task, certainly over 2020, but something we were we were all up to as a leadership team. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's often said that leaders are made in uh, crucible moments. And obviously, 2020 was 
um, crucible moment for you in the journalism business in on many, many fronts. And so how did you, I'm curious, how did you grow as a leader? What new capacities did you feel like you developed? What surprised you about your own leadership? I recognize in myself a greater level of resilience than I probably thought I had. I think people think that when you become a CEO, you know, somebody comes to you and says, for a period of time in your life, will you take on this responsibility? But as a human being, you're still the same human being with the same habits and the same feelings that uh, that you had before. And I think about, I think while I've evolved, certainly I'm fundamentally the same person that I was even you know, when I joined this company uh, as an executive producer in our newsroom in Phoenix in 2002. And so I think there's nothing that magical that happens when you get a new business card. But I think as you get tested through your time as a CEO, you can develop your new habits. And I think 2020 was certainly a, a, a year that tested all of our resilience. And I feel really good about the way we emerged uh, as a company from it and the way I was able to practice leadership. Surprises? You know, I've, I've long believed transparency is really, really important. And I mean transparency with our employees, transparency with our shareholders, transparency with the board. And this was a year where we absolutely put that into practice from town halls regularly with our employees, where they would ask me, are we going to have job cuts? Are we going to have to have furloughs? And I was very honest. Hey, look, right now we're on firm footing, but we don't know how long this is going to last and we don't know how deep it's going to go. And so, you know, our goal will be to avoid those things, but it's, it's certainly possible being very transparent, meeting with the board, regularly, once a week for telephone conversations where we were just keeping the board up to speed on the number of employees that we had that were sick or quarantined, how we were ensuring that uh, we were going to be better positioned for business continuity, and how we were doing financially as a result of some of the value destruction, some of the damage that I was talking about earlier. Meeting with our investors through a tremendous amount of investor relations, all of them seeking answers because they've tied up their money. And all of a sudden, our stock price, along with the rest of you know the media sector, has gone down tremendously. And so they're looking to me for answers. And I felt like I, the, I owed them transparency. Here's what we're doing. Here's what I think. Here's what we don't know. And being very comfortable, being open and honest and as transparent as possible, obviously within the, the limits of, uh, of reporting regulations with them. And I think 2020 has, for me, reiterated the importance of transparency in my leadership style and, mm. and being very, very comfortable being earnest and authentic and open with people because that's that's just really what they're looking for. They need to be able to make decisions for their own lives and so much rests with their association with the company and the decisions that you as CEO make. Hmm. And Adam, I imagine that there were a lot of pressures, right? So on the one hand, there is, you know, you've got declining advertising revenues. On the other hand, you've got employees wondering, do I still have a job or when, until when do I still have a job? And then you have um, shareholders and investors sort of trying to figure out, do I stick with the stock or not? And that's really stressful. Some of those needs are competing needs, honestly. And so 
My question related to that is how do you keep yourself sane? Do you have like a practice that you do for, you know, managing your own stress and resilience? Well, I do a lot of exercise. I get up every morning and I try to exercise. And uh, if I don't fit it in in the morning, I try to get it in at some other time. That was uh, advice given to me by uh, several mentors when I took on this job. I, I don't have a practice per se. I, I guess I would say I really think about the decisions we make and hope that we're able to balance every one of those stakeholders in a way that still does what's right for the company. So I'll give you an example. We, we did have some peers that furloughed employees and that did pay cuts. And we were really resolved not to do those things because this wasn't just a regular economic downturn where if somebody lost their job, they would be able to go on unemployment and get another job. I mean, this was a downturn in which there was a global pandemic underway. People could lose their health insurance. People could find themselves without uh, the means to, to pay their bills being put out of their homes. And so we made a different decision. We decided that senior leadership was going to take a pay cut and that the board was going to take a pay cut. And rather than take that expense savings to the bottom line, we pushed that money into a fund for employee relief. And we uh, were then joined by a contribution from the Scripps family. And over the course of the year, we gave out free and clear $1.3 million in funds to our employees. So while we didn't have job cuts, the fact is many of our dual income employees, the other income might have been negatively impacted. Many of our employees had new childcare costs, elder care costs. People were having trouble making ends meet. And I'm glad that Scripps was able to step in and make a difference. So when I talk about emerging from the pandemic, a stronger company, I believe the way we treated our employees will inure to our benefit. They will work harder for this company. They will be more loyal to this company because this company was there for them. And we hope they can now be there for us. And I think ultimately that benefits all of our shareholders and certainly benefits the communities we serve. The last year was strange. It was difficult. I mean, we were in the middle of a pandemic. We were covering an unbelievable election. There was a period of time where I was getting notices, uh, calls, you know, several times a week about our employees under physical threat, being harassed on the job, being actually assaulted, having our news vehicles burned. And this was the environment in which our employees were operating. We were making decisions about what kind of security we could provide to them, what kind of assurances we could give them, how we could make sure they recognized that the company wanted them to do their job, but no story was worth their life or being injured. And this all happened in this compressed year. So I think for us, it's always about making sure that we're making decisions that we think are in the long-term best interest of our company. And that is really about the stakeholder agility you describe in your book. Yeah, yeah. That's so powerful. I'm so happy that you're, I mean, it sounds like it was a really tough year. And at the same time, I, I loved the way that you dimensionalized the daily challenges that being in the journalism business, that one who's not in the business would never think about that employees at Scripps had to deal with. And, you know, against that backdrop now, it's even 
to me, it's even more remarkable that you chose to do another acquisition on top of that. And so I'm curious now, it seems like you are very change agile, that change and disruption actually is something that is that you're quite comfortable with. And so are there any mindsets that you have that that make you that way? I mean, have you always been somebody who is very comfortable with disruption or are there some mindsets that you have that I think, you know, I, I would imagine our podcast listeners be really curious about that. For a long time through my career as an investigative journalist, I wondered what I was preparing myself for, because if I wasn't going to continue doing this, what did I prepare myself for? And I've, I've relatively recently come to the realization that, that journalism requires just an incredible level of curiosity and a willingness to walk in with an assumption, but be completely disavowed of that assumption and, and, and to pivot. And that's really what I think prepared me for this job. I, I don't hold on to something too tightly. Uh, I develop an opinion about something, but I'm easily swayed from that opinion if I'm shown evidence to the contrary. And I think that has a lot to do with my background in journalism. I'm not afraid of change. I don't enjoy chaos. To be clear, I don't thrive on the kind of uncertainty that we've all lived through in 2020. But I, in my head, really believe that I have a responsibility to position this company to ensure that it's set up to succeed as the media landscape evolves. Mm. And that's exactly what we set out to do as a leadership team. And I think that's what we're doing. Beautiful. So now let's fast forward um, 10 years to the end of this decade, you know, 2030. And you're looking back at a very powerful decade for you personally, professionally, for your leadership legacy at this company. From your perspective, what would have happened to make you feel both really proud and also humbled in terms of your contribution? Ten years from now, I hope we'll look back and recognize that the transaction we just came through with the acquisition of ION did, in fact, set this company on a different path, giving it greater options for it to navigate and be a leader in the future of television. We are absolutely the leader in free over-the-air television. I see that growth marketplace continuing to develop. And yet at the same time, there's no guarantees. And so we have to operate the company in a way that allows us to take control of our own destiny. There's more we can do to enhance that marketplace. There's more we can do to grow the total addressable market of over-the-air viewers. There's more we can do to enlighten the American public uh, around the importance of journalism. and the way local television journalism, broadcast journalism has a responsibility to serve them. And so that's what I hope we would look back on over the last 10 years and, and, and recognize. Frankly, I think we've lived through an extraordinary year, and I am concerned about what I see in this country with misinformation and disinformation, with a generation that's emerging from high school, for example without the skills to navigate this very complex content ecosystem. And so I think we have a responsibility to work to ensure Americans recognize the value of journalism and have the skills to understand how to use it. And so I hope 10 years from now, we look back and we see a renaissance in journalism, that all information is not 
created equal, but that reporting and journalism has recaptured the faith that the American people used to have in it as an industry or in it as a uh, critical component of our democracy. Spoken like a true journalist, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) I can't help myself. (laughs) So you have two daughters, right? I do. Mm -hmm. 11 and 14. As they grow up in this decade and, you know, start their careers, what leadership advice do you have for them? So I think it's easy to lead in a time of great prosperity. I think it's easy to lead when things are going well. I think what I've come to recognize is that you have to prepare yourself to lead at those moments where things go south. This was something that Rich Bainey, our previous CEO, used to talk to me all the time about. It's not about how you succeed. It's about how you fail. It's what you do when you inevitably get kicked in the gut. And what I've recognized in this job is you get kicked in the gut a lot. Mm. And I think my advice to my children, I've spent a lot of time talking about this because they, of course, have had their own failures. They seem enormous at the time. But the truth is how you respond to the failure and how you learn from the lessons and how you pick yourself up and persevere and move forward. Those, I think, are um, the determining factors on what your leadership style is going to be. Of course, there are other things too, like how you treat the people around you and how you leverage them for their strengths. But I think people look to you at moments of uncertainty and people look to you at moments where the world is falling apart. And if you can stand tall and speak to them with transparency and as much clarity as you can discern, I think they'll be willing to to follow your leadership. Beautiful. Thank you so much for this time, Adam. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much, Hannah. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Hannah Anam. Please rate, comment, and share our podcast with those you care about. Be the leader who helps others grow and thrive in times of disruption. You can visit our website at www.transformleaders.tv. There, you'll find other great tools to grow your leadership and be a force for good in these times. Until the next time, my friends.